the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Joshua. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. The Israelites didn't have horses and chariots, okay? And they were much smaller in number. But, you know, this is the beauty of the story, where you can be outnumbered and you can be outmaneuvered. But if you have God on your side, it's going to go well for you. And that's what happens here with the Israelites. They don't need horses and chariots. They have God. In fact, it reminds me of what David wrote in Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. What or who do you trust so much that you feel invincible when you have it or when they are around? In other words, your security blanket. You feel unstoppable with it and powerless without it. This is the very nature of your faith. And as Pastor Gary will tell you today, the Israelites had it in spades. They knew that with God's help, there was no one and nothing that could stop them. When you put your faith in God and let Him lead your life, you too will achieve great victories in the name of the Lord. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Joshua chapter 11 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Now, I will tell you that I'm I'm probably not going to read every verse tonight because there's a lot, and you'll notice as we make our way into chapter 12 and 13 and 14, that has to do with the allotment of land to the Israelites as they take the promised land. And there is, there's a lot here to do with uh, geography and names and locations. And uh, so some of this uh, I'll, I'll leave to you to read at home. I know it'll be a joyful time with the Lord privately, but publicly in the corporate setting, some of these verses we'll probably skip. Now, all of chapter 11 we're going to be able to read through, but let me just set the stage with where we are here at Joshua chapter 11. I'm going to walk to the back because we're going to look at our trusty map because a lot is happening in this 11th chapter. And so I want to bring you up to speed with where things are. So the black arrow represents the path that the Israelites have taken after their slavery in Egypt. They come down through the Sinai below the southern part of Israel. They come around the eastern side of the Dead Sea. And then they go from east to west into Israel. And once they cross the Jordan River, the first town that they settle in is called Gilgal. That will kind of be their base of operation for these military campaigns. Because as they take the land that God has promised on oath to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there are people there who are unwilling to allow them to come in. And so God says to them, you must displace them. 
They have the opportunity for 400 years to turn to the Lord, but they refuse to. And so God says the sin of the Amorites has now reached its full extent. So the Israelites cross the Jordan River. They come to Gilgal. It'll be their base of operation. The first city that they take in Joshua chapter 6 is the city of Jericho. Following Jericho in chapter 8, they take the city of Ai. And thus, basically, they capture the central region of Israel along particularly the mountainous cliff area and some of the central plains. But what we read last week in chapter 10 is that five southern kings of five southern cities are now launching an offensive against the Israelites. They have heard that the Israelites have defeated Jericho and Ai, and so these five kings to the south, king of Jerusalem, king of Jarmuth, king of Lachish, king of Eglon, and king of Hebron, all wage war against the Israelites, which really, in effect, is you're waging war against God. And so it doesn't go well for them. They are defeated, and the Israelites then basically take the southern part of the nation, But now what we're going to read in chapter 11 is that after the southern kings are defeated, kings in the north hear about this, and they wage war against Israel. And so this is going to be the territory that we're talking about when we get here now to chapter 11. The kings we're about to read are kings from the northern part of Israel, just south of the Sea of Galilee, and even north of the Sea of Galilee. So as we read through these names and through through these locations, this is the area that we're talking about here in chapter 11. The northern kings... Here that the southern kings have been defeated, so they're going to fight. And what we end up seeing here is this is a defensive war that the Israelites fight, but they're going to end up capturing effectively all of the promised land at the end of chapter 11. And then as we move into chapter 12, 13, and 14, Joshua's going to start to divide the land based on tribal regions. Now, again, there are 12 tribes to Israel. The nation of Israel at this point was made up of 12 tribes, and that was based on 12 sons of Jacob. And these 12 sons then had generations after them, and so each tribe was known by one of these 12 sons' names. And each tribe is going to get a certain land allotment with the exception, we might get to it tonight, we may not, with the exception of the tribe of Levi, because the Levites will be priests who serve the Lord. The descendants of Levi will end up being priests who serve God first in the tabernacle, which is a temporary place of worship until they have a temple that is built by Solomon in Jerusalem, and then the Levites will minister there. So the Levites didn't have a land allotment. Why? Because God was their inheritance. And so they were not given a particular allotment of land. They had Levitical cities where they could live. But they did not find their inheritance in land because their inheritance was in the Lord. And so we're going to read here chapter 11 about this military campaign. And then we'll see how far we get into chapter 12 and 13 perhaps tonight. But here we go. Chapter 11. And it came to pass when Jabin king of Hazor heard these things, heard these things about the southern kings being defeated that he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, to the king of Shimron, to the king of Aksphah, and to the kings, plural, who were from the north, in the mountains, in the plain south of Kinneroth, 
in the lowland and in the heights of Dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and in the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the termites. You know, you get it, right? <laughs> All these ites, right? In the mountains and the Hivite below Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And so they went out, they and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand that is on the seashore in multitude, with very many horses and chariots. And when all these kings had met together, they came and camped together at the waters of Moron to fight against Israel. Okay, so just as I said, these kings to the north have gathered together, and there are some who are named. There's uh, one, two, three, four kings that are named, and then there are kings here, just plural, in the north. And it tells us there in verse 2, also in the plain south of Kinneroth. So you can make a notation in your Bibles, Kinneroth is the Hebrew for the word harp, and it is a reference to the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is shaped when you have a bird's eye view. I don't know how the Israelites do this because this is before satellite imagery. But if you have a bird's eye view and you look at the Sea of Galilee on the map, it is shaped like a harp. And so Kinneroth was a word that was used to describe the Sea of Galilee. So that's what Kinneroth means, harp. And it is a reference to the Sea of Galilee. So we're talking about that area around the Sea of Galilee. In the lowland also, it talks about... And another location for you in verse 5, they camp together at the waters of Marom. Now, the waters of Marom are located just north of the Sea of Galilee. There used to be another small freshwater lake just north of the Sea of Galilee, but it hasn't been there since the late 1950s. And uh, it, is, it used to be called the Hula Lake. And that region today, north of the Sea of Galilee, is called the Hula Valley. And today it's a very fertile agricultural area just north of the Sea of Galilee. But back in this day, there was a lake there. It wasn't a very deep lake. It wasn't just a couple miles east to west, a couple miles north and south. Smaller, much smaller than the Sea of Galilee. But what they discovered was that it was mostly swampland. And uh, after the Israelis took the land of Israel again and, and declared their independence in 1948, uh, one of the first things that they noticed was that the malaria as a result of mosquitoes in this swampy area of the Hula Valley was causing a lot of illness. And so in 19, starting in 1951 until around 1958, they started draining the swamp of the Hula Valley. They planted eucalyptus trees. Eucalyptus sucked up the water from the swamp area. They widened the Jordan River a little bit to capture some of the runoff. And today, there is no Lake Kula. There is no waters of Marom. And there is no swampy area. And there's also no malaria. It is a very fertile and rich agricultural area today of uh, fields. And a lot is grown there. They have protected some of it as a a natural uh, nature preserve, and there are millions of birds and wildlife that live in that area, but strictly speaking, what we're reading about here in the Bible, it no longer exists. The swamp has been drained, and there's plenty of places the swamp still needs to be drained, but that's a whole other subject. But in this case, uh, there, there used to be waters here, and these 
kings of the north gathered there. And I want you to notice that, again, it says so many armies with them that verse 4 says, as many people as the sand that is on the seashore in multitude. That's one point to remember. And the second point is the as the uh, words that follow, with very many horses and chariots. Now, why is it important to note that? Because the Israelites were outnumbered. There were so many armies coming against them that the biblical description is just too numerous to count. That's what is meant here by like sand on, on the seashore. Just too numerous to count. That's how many thousands of soldiers have gathered here. So not only were the Israelites outnumbered, but they were also outmaneuvered because these other armies had horses and chariots. The Israelites didn't have horses and chariots, okay? And they were much smaller in number. But, you know, this is the beauty of the story where you can be outnumbered and you can be outmaneuvered. But if you have God on your side, it's going to go well for you. And that's what happens here with the Israelites. They don't need horses and chariots. They have God. In fact, it reminds me of what David wrote in Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. That's Psalm 27. Uh, That's a verse that probably some of us need to write down because there might be some things that you're going through that you feel the odds are stacked against you. You know, there are things happening in our own culture where we can start to get depressed, things in our own county where we think, wow, things are stacked against us or things are not going in our favor. But listen, you know, if God is for us, who can be against us? And so we just need to always trust him and lean into him. And we can't always make sense of stuff in our world or in our personal lives. But some trust and cherish, some in horses. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. And so these armies have gathered, these kings have gathered, they outnumber the Israelites, they've outmaneuvered the Israelites. But it says in verse 6, but the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid because of them. For tomorrow about this time, I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. And he says, you shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. Great movie too, by the way, Chariots of Fire. Some of you are too young to even know what I'm talking about. Google it. It's a good movie. But notice that God says, I want you to hamstring the horses and I want you to burn the chariots. In other words, I don't want you to capture their weapons. I want you to destroy their weapons. Because, you know, the Bible, Paul reminds us the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not natural. But they're spiritual for the pulling down of strongholds. That God fights for us, and we don't need to rely on human things like this. So he even says to Joshua, you know, don't don't take their horses and think, well, now you have a a cavalry. I want you to hamstring their horses. Don't take their chariots, because you're going to become dependent on those and think that the chariots are going to do your fighting for you. No, because the Lord is saying, I'm going to be fighting for you. So hamstring the horses, burn their chariots with fire. Verse 7, so Joshua and all the people of war with him came against them suddenly by the waters of Merom, and they attacked them. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel, who defeated them and chased them to greater Sidon, to the brook Mizrahoth, and to the valley of Mizpah, eastward. They attacked them until they left none of them standing. And so Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots 
with fire. By the way, you're going to see different times where it just makes this statement about Joshua that he did as the Lord told him, or he did as Moses had told him because the Lord had told Moses. Joshua is a very obedient man. He's very faithful to God. He doesn't question. He doesn't say, well, why this, why that? He just does what God says. In verse 10, and so Joshua turned back at that time and took Hazor and struck its king with a sword. For Hazor was formerly the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was none left breathing. And then he burned Hazor with fire. So all the cities of those kings and all their kings, Joshua took and struck with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them. Here it is again, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But as for the cities that stood on their mounds, Israel burned none of them except Hazor, only which Joshua burned. It's interesting. It speaks here specifically that any city that was built on a mound, now the Hebrew word is tal, there are different ancient tells throughout the land of Israel. And a tell is basically a mound where civilization upon civilization has built over the same area. And so even today, like when, when you go to various sites in Israel and we stand at Megiddo and we look over the, the valley, the Jezreel Valley where Armageddon will be waged, the Valley of Megiddo, archaeologists have taken like a slice of Megiddo. Megiddo is a tell. And they've taken like a slice. It, it almost looks like a piece of a pie that was taken out of this ancient tell. And you can actually see when you look into the slice, you can actually see like 15 different layers of civilizations going all the way back to the Canaanite period. So it's interesting here, by the way, Tel Aviv means mound of the spring. So there are various tells in Israel that Joshua's like, we're going to preserve the historical record here. We're not going to demolish these ancient tells. If there was a city that was built upon a city, we're going to let it stand. Only Hazor did he burn. So I don't know if that's trying to preserve history as a record or, or why exactly, but he didn't burn any of the mounds. He didn't burn any of the tells except Hazor. Verse 14, and all the spoil of those cities and the livestock, the children of Israel took as, well, New King James says, booty, don't, don't let your mind, just, it's plunder, okay? That's what it is. It's just the word that's used here. For themselves, okay, all of the spoils of these cities, they took for themselves, but they struck every man with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they left none breathing. As the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. There's that statement again about it's just his obedience. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So again, you know, the, these are hard chapters. These are military campaigns. God has been patient with the Amorites. They have refused to bow to God. And so judgment is coming upon these nations, particularly as they wage an offensive war against the Israelites. Well, verse 16 says, And thus Joshua took all this land, the mountain country, all the south, all the land of Goshen, the lowland and the Jordan plain, the mountains of Israel and its lowlands, from Mount Halak and the ascent to Seir, even as far as Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon. He captured all their kings and struck them down and killed them. 
And Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel, except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. All the others they took in battle. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might utterly destroy them and that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them as the Lord had commanded Moses. Again, pause there for a moment. This is sometimes some difficult theological stuff here where it talks about how God hardened their hearts. Verse 20, it was the Lord who, to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel. Now, whenever you read in the Bible, because this isn't the only place that the Lord hardened someone's hearts. Remember, with Pharaoh, before Pharaoh let the Israelites go, it said God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It says that, I think, eight times. But it also says, I think, three times that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. What does it mean when the Bible says that the Lord hardened their hearts. It sounds very fatalistic. It sounds like, well, God is just forcing this by his own hand. When God hardens one's heart, it simply means this, that he's giving to them what their sinful heart desires. You see, God is patient with us, but to a point when we continue to refuse to yield to God, to surrender to God, then he will, in effect, give us what we want. And it's not because he wants to. It's because the inclination of our sinful heart refuses to submit, refuses to bend, refuses to surrender, refuses to repent. And so then God says, basically, okay, you want to be like that? Fine. I'll let you be like that. And how miserable it is for us. This is Romans chapter 1, where God even talks about how he turned people over to the lusts and the immorality of their own hearts. Because at some point when people say, this is what I want, this is what I want, and I refuse you, God, then God will harden their hearts and say, this is what you want. Okay, then I'm going to give you what you want. And the people here who were coming against God and coming against Israel, time and time again, God tried to reach them. But it came to a point where they didn't want peace with God. They didn't want a peace with the Israelites. So God's saying, okay, then I'm going to give you what your sinful hearts want. It's not going to go well for you. This is true for all of us. It never goes well for us when we get what our evil hearts want. What goes well for us is when we ask God to forgive us of our evil hearts and surrender to him. That's what goes well for us. But in our stubbornness and in our reluctance, God will sometimes then give us what we're wanting by hardening our own hearts. And thus, destruction came to them. Verse 21, and at that time, Joshua came and cut off the Anakim. Now, circle that in your Bibles. This is not Anakin, all right? This is not Anakin Skywalker. This is Anakim. We'll talk about them in a moment. Very interesting, kind of strange people. But notice at that time, Joshua came and cut off the Anakim from the mountains, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, from all the mountains of Judah, and from all the mountains of Israel. Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. None of the Anakim were left in the land of the children of Israel. But notice, they remained only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod. Now, there's, in other words, what we're reading there is that he destroys the Anakim that are in the land of Israel, but he pushes them to the perimeters to these areas, Gaza, which is down by the Mediterranean area. It's the same region today that's called Gaza, which it's Palestinian territory. 
He pushes them off also to Gath and to Ashdod. These are different cities on the perimeter of Israel. And they will remain there because we're not done with the Anakim. Now, I'll talk a little bit about who the Anakim are, were, because they're kind of an interesting group, but let me just hasten to add this. We haven't seen the last of them. Thanks for listening to Cornerstone Connection. You've been listening to a message from the eventful book of Joshua. After years of wandering in the wilderness, the Israelite people would finally get to enter into the Promised Land. What would it be like? What would their future hold? There were so many unknowns that they were entering into, yet God had promised He would bless them. Entering a new season of anything can be a bit daunting and even scary, but there's a reason that God continually reminded Joshua in this book to be strong and courageous. God would be with them, and He's with you, too, as you face new challenges and situations. Do you like the message you heard today? Want to listen to more just like it? At cornerstoneconnection.cc, you can listen to additional teachings from this series in Joshua. If you'd like to get in touch with us and ask for prayer about things you're wrestling through or even struggling to be strong and courageous in, feel free to email us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. We'd love to pray for you. With that, our time is about up for today, but we look forward to sharing more from the book of Joshua. So come back for more with Pastor Gary here on Cornerstone Connection. No place to go, but still you know, still you know you're not alone. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.